The kakadu plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. This Day in History class is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to This Day in History class, a show that proves there's more than one way to make history. I'm Gabe Luzier, and today we're talking about the first person to experience the mind-bending effects of LSD, otherwise known as acid. The user in question was a 32-year-old chemist who thought he had invented a new medicine for improving blood circulation only to realize that wasn't the case in one of the most upsetting ways possible. As a warning, today's episode includes descriptions of drug use and may not be appropriate for younger listeners. The day was April 19, 1943. Swiss chemist Albert Hoffman discovered the psychic effects of LSD while bike riding home from his lab. It was the first time Hoffman had intentionally ingested lysergic acid diethylamide, a new substance that he had stumbled upon five years earlier. The young chemist was unaware of the full effects of his creation, but he was about to find them out firsthand. Albert Hoffman first synthesized LSD in 1938 while working in the pharmaceutical research and development department at Sandoz Laboratories. The Swiss company had made a name for itself in the chemical sector, producing a variety of dyes as well as saccharin, an artificial sweetener. Hoffman's job was to experiment with medicinal plants in order to identify, purify, and synthesize their active compounds for use in pharmaceuticals. The main focus of his work in the late 1930s was ergot, a fungus that grows on rye and that can be poisonous when consumed in its natural form. Researchers had determined that all of the active compounds in ergot shared a common nucleus, lysergic acid. Hoffman figured out a way to synthetically recreate that crucial chemical, and in a series of experiments, he began combining it with various other organic molecules in hopes of creating a new, medically useful compound. 
The 25th attempt in that series was a combination of lysergic acid and diethylamine, a derivative of ammonia. Its laboratory name was LSD-25, and Hoffman hoped it would prove effective as an analeptic, a type of medicine used to stimulate circulation and respiration. Unfortunately, the pharmacologists and physicians at Sandoz didn't think the compound showed much promise. Testing was discontinued shortly after it started, and LSD-25 was shelved indefinitely. Hoffman carried on with his ergot research for the next five years, but for some reason, he couldn't let go of LSD-25. He had a feeling, which he later described as a, quote, peculiar presentiment, that the substance may have other properties that had gone overlooked during initial testing. It was only a hunch, but it was enough to convince him to synthesize a new batch of LSD-25, which he did on Friday, April 16, 1943. Hoffman later remarked on that pivotal day in his lab, saying, quote, I did not choose LSD. LSD found and called me. Whether you believe that somewhat mystic take or not, it is true that Hoffman didn't intend to ingest LSD-25 on April 16th. However, while he was making it, he inadvertently absorbed a small amount of the substance through the skin of his fingertips. At the time, he didn't even know it had happened. All he knew was that he suddenly felt very strange and very dizzy. He decided to go home early, and when he returned to the lab the following Monday, he wrote a letter to his boss explaining what had happened. At home, I lay down, he wrote, and sank into a not unpleasant, intoxicated-like condition characterized by an extremely stimulated imagination. In a dreamlike state, with eyes closed, I perceived an uninterrupted stream of fantastic pictures, extraordinary shapes, with intense kaleidoscopic play of colors. Hoffman was intrigued by his experience, but he still wasn't sure what had caused it. He had performed multiple experiments in the lab that day and had taken all the usual precautions. He repeated a few of those tasks on April 19th, but none of them brought on the same effect. That's when it dawned on him that he may have been exposed to a trace amount of LSD-25 and that it might have hallucinogenic properties that he had never even considered. With that prospect in mind, Hoffman decided to do something incredibly reckless. At 4.20 in the afternoon, he dissolved 250 micrograms of LSD-25 in water and then drank it. He took what he thought was a small amount, but it turned out to be a pretty sizable dose. The effects came on quickly, and though Hoffman intended to record what he was feeling throughout the experience, his final journal entry of the day was less than an hour after ingesting the drug. It said, quote, Beginning dizziness, feeling of anxiety, visual distortions, symptoms of paralysis, desire to laugh. In his 1980 autobiography, LSD, My Problem Child, Hoffman noted how difficult it had been to maintain his focus during that first trip. I was able to write the last words only with great effort, he said. I had to struggle to speak intelligibly. Hoffman had only informed one other person at Sandoz of his experiment that day, a lab assistant who graciously agreed to escort Hoffman home once the full effects of the drug had taken hold. That task wasn't as easy as you might imagine, though, as the Second World War was still raging in 1943. Personal cars had been banned from the road due to wartime vehicle restrictions, meaning that Hoffman and his assistant would have to ride their bikes home. 
It was during that infamous bike ride, shortly after 6pm, that Hoffman experienced the peak intensity of LSD. The chemist later recounted that harrowing journey in his memoir, writing, quote, Everything in my field of vision wavered and was distorted, as if seen in a curved mirror. I also had the sensation of being unable to move from the spot. Nevertheless, my assistant later told me that we had traveled very rapidly. Finally, we arrived at home safe and sound, and I was just barely capable of asking my companion to summon our family doctor and request milk from the neighbors. Hoffman had no idea what to expect over the next several hours, and that uncertainty terrified him like nothing else. For all he knew, the potent drug he had ingested might have permanently damaged his psyche. He started worrying about its toxic qualities as well, fearing that he may have accidentally poisoned himself, possibly to the point of dying. It was that last concern that led him to ask for milk from his neighbor, as the antioxidants in milk can sometimes relieve the symptoms of toxic substances. Hoffman did eventually get his hands on some milk that evening, but by then, he was so deep in the throes of the drug that it did him no good, and even the experience of receiving it filled him with dread. The dizziness and sensation of fainting became so strong at times, he wrote, that I could no longer hold myself erect and had to lie down on a sofa. Everything in the room spun around, and the familiar objects and pieces of furniture assumed grotesque, threatening forms. They were in continuous motion, animated as if driven by an inner relentlessness. The lady next door, whom I scarcely recognized, brought me milk. In the course of the evening, I drank more than two liters. She was no longer Mrs. R., but rather a malevolent, insidious witch with a colored mask. Every exertion of my will, every attempt to put an end to the disintegration of the outer world and the disillusion of my ego seemed to be a wasted effort. Hoffman was in the midst of the world's first bad acid trip, but he wasn't dying. In fact, when his doctor arrived, all of his vital signs were normal. The only evidence that the chemist was out of sorts at all were his eyes, which were extremely dilated. Once he'd been given a clean bill of health, though, Hoffman was able to relax and actually enjoy his experience. As he later described it, quote, The horror softened and gave way to a feeling of good fortune and gratitude. The more normal perceptions and thoughts returned, and I became more confident that the danger of insanity was conclusively past. Now, little by little, I could begin to enjoy the unprecedented colors and plays of shapes that persisted behind my closed eyes. Kaleidoscopic, fantastic images surged in on me, alternating, variegated, opening and then closing themselves in circles and spirals, exploding in colored fountains, rearranging and hybridizing themselves in constant flux. It was particularly remarkable how every acoustic perception, such as the sound of a door handle or a passing automobile, became transformed into optical perceptions. Every sound generated a vividly changing image with its own consistent form and color. By the time Hoffman's wife got home that evening, her husband was able to speak coherently about what had happened to him. And the following morning, he woke feeling better than he had in years. He noted the change in his journal, writing, quote, Everything glistened and sparkled in a fresh light. The world was as if newly created. All my senses vibrated in a condition of highest sensitivity, which persisted for the entire day. It was clear that Hoffman had made an amazing discovery, and it wasn't long before Sandoz Pharmaceuticals began promoting LSD as a treatment for psychiatric disorders. 
It was marketed under the trade name Delicid, and for a brief time, it was a popular treatment used in conjunction with psychoanalysis. There were numerous scientific studies of the drug's therapeutic effects, but it was within the American counterculture that LSD found its strongest foothold. From the beat generation to the hippies, LSD, or acid, was widely embraced among artists, writers, actors, and rebellious teens. Psychology professor and activist Timothy Leary encouraged mainstream consumption of the drug in the 1960s and 70s, believing that LSD could expand the consciousness of any person who took it. Of course, by then, the drug had gained a nasty reputation for the bad trips it sometimes caused and also for encouraging what many considered to be the breakdown of societal norms. As a result, in 1966, New York and California made it a crime to possess LSD, and the U.S. government followed suit four years later. As you might imagine, Albert Hoffman was distraught to see his discovery forced underground by prohibition. His early encounters with the drug had convinced him that LSD would be a major benefit to the fields of pharmacology, neurology, and psychiatry. He never imagined LSD would catch on as a recreational drug, probably because his initial experiences were so nightmarish that it was hard to imagine anyone taking it for fun. Hoffman condemned the casual use of the drug, arguing that those who abused it were failing to recognize its true purpose. He still believed LSD could be a useful treatment for psychological disorders, but he came to view it as a tool for personal growth as well, calling the substance, quote, medicine for the soul. Albert Hoffman continued to advocate for those dual uses for the rest of his life, but the stigma surrounding LSD prevented its widespread acceptance. That said, his pioneering work still found many admirers in the academic community. In 1985, for example, a professor of educational psychology named Thomas B. Roberts kicked off a now-annual celebration of Hoffman's fateful bike ride. It started out as just a private party for his fellow educators and scientists, but as word spread, other similar events began popping up around the globe. Today, psychedelic enthusiasts and fans of Hoffman's work commemorate each April 19th as Bicycle Day. Dropping acid is thankfully not a requirement to partake in the festivities, which often include concerts, museum exhibitions, movie screenings, and of course, bike rides. In recent years, there has also been renewed interest in the clinical uses of LSD. While there's still plenty of red tape surrounding the drug, there's hope that it may become a potential treatment for many of the same conditions Hoffman originally outlined, including depression, PTSD, anxiety, and drug addiction. As for the father of LSD, he died of a heart attack at his home in Basel, Switzerland in 2008. He had continued to use LSD in his private life for decades, evidently without a negative effect on his health, as he lived to the ripe old age of 102. His acid days were behind him by then, but not by much. According to Hoffman, he used the drug he discovered for the last time at the age of 97. No word on whether he went for a bike ride that time, although in his head, it probably felt like he did. I'm Gabe Lussier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you have a second and you're so inclined, consider following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHCshow. You can also rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, or you can get in touch directly by writing to thisday at iheartmedia.com. 
Thanks to Chandler Mays and Ben Hackett for producing the show, and thank you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work.